First of all, I want all of the ladies and everyone, John Williams, even though you're not a lady, John, you're a volunteer. So we want all the people with green name tags front and center so we can give a round of applause and thanks for all of the help they've been and all the work they've done, including Eddie, without whom there's no, no sound. There's nothing. And so give them a good round of applause and appreciation for all that they, all that they have done. The other thing, and this is for the live streamers as well, but there is a, there have been a lot of questions about how people can continue to donate for these people in need in Ukraine. And so what we have done at West Houston Bible Church, we've got a Ukrainian uh, fund set up. And what we're going to do is we have a message now on the westhoustonbiblechurch.org website that explains it. And if you're Go to the DBM website. It, there's a link that takes you to the West Houston Bible Church website because this is a fluid situation that go, may go on for months and months, and the needs are going to vary. And so we're going to update this uh, weekly as to what is going on with these folks. Okay, so uh, that will be there. And you can, uh, the primary way is to, if you go to PayPal, there's actually a checkbox for a comment. And you can put a comment in there for Igor or for the you know, Ukrainian help for Alex or whatever. And then if you send a check, just put a post-it note in there or another note designating that, and that'll be fine. And then we'll take care of distributions according to how the needs are working out, okay? Our speaker now is uh, Dr. John Brummett. Br What's the name of your church? Free Grace Bible Church. Free Grace Bible Church. I ought to be able to remember that. You've only been there for, what, 20 years? But uh, I've known John about as long as I've known Andy. I remember when Tommy Ice and I went to a conservative theological uh, society meeting at Tyndale Seminary about 1998, I think. And that is when we first met, and there's been a lot of water under that bridge. And so it's good to have John come and speak on the topic, Did the Founders of Dallas Seminary Teach Five-Point Calvinism? And this is part of just understanding the church history web ebb and flow because 1923 is the founding of Dallas Seminary. Incidentally, next year is their 100th anniversary. And about I've been told by someone on staff, on faculty, that there's about 50% of their faculty has been postponing retirement until they can be part, so they can be part of this 100-year thing. And so in the next three years, there's going to be I mean, I would hate that if I were head of a seminary that I'm going to have a 50% faculty turnover. That can totally change the whole school. So we need to be in prayer for that. But this is in the midst of the fundamentalist modernist controversy. This is in the midst of the uh, right after this, like in 1929, Princeton go, or 27, Princeton goes down. And, and then the next year they found Westminster Seminary, which was originally pre-mill and ah-mill. And there was a lot of things that happened in the 30s that are very important. And some of those people were coming to Dallas. Some were going other places. So anyway, John's going to talk about that. So, John, it's all yours.
Uh, let's begin by going to Lord in prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the opportunity to take in your word. I pray, Father, that we might see more clearly and accurately your truth as it is expounded, Father, accurately. Just bless the hearers through the scripture, even through this historical study, Father, and help us to adhere to sound doctrine, reject the false teaching of our day, sanctify the believers here through your truth, because your word is truth. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin by asking you a question. Are you a Democrat or a Republican? He said, I thought you were going to teach about Calvinism. <laughs> this is an illustration. <laughs> How would you know? How would you know? You might say that, well, my father was a Democrat, my uncle was a Democrat, and my grandfather's a Democrat, therefore I'm a Democrat. Well, what specific views do you hold? that the Democratic Party holds to. The same with the Republican Party. What are their particular views? What would be the official standard to determine whether you were a Democrat, Republican, maybe not either? Maybe some or some of both. Well, you would have to look at their party statement and compare it to their party statement. So I'll give you some illustrations here, some examples. Republic, on the Republican side, government is not the solution to domestic social problems. Now, if you believe that, more than likely you are leaning Republican or Republican. Democrats state more government programs such as universal health care. On the Republican side, the free market should control all financial decisions. On the Democrat side, socialism. More regulations on businesses and raise the minimum wage. Republican, religion, the belief in God is vital to a strong nation. Democrat, support gay marriage and abortion. Maybe you believe in lower taxes, although that was a view that JFK held to. But uh, if you believe in lower taxes, more than likely you lean Republican. Or higher taxes, Democrat. How about a strong military? Do you believe in a strong military? Or do you believe in cutting funding to the military? And last contrast here, are you a fiscal conservative? Don't spend more money than you have. Now that's something that both parties have neglected. Or spend money like a drunken sailor. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Well, the same question goes with, am I a Calvinist or an Arminian? You hear a lot of, uh, you know, heat about this discussion, but little light. Well, you need to compare it to a standard or statement, or maybe you're neither. Well, the standard or statement I want to compare the founders of Dallas Seminary with is with Dorian Calvinism, what we typically call the tulip. And I think Stephen Thomas's book on Calvinism is a fair representative view of five-point Calvinism, and we're going to compare it to that book. What are the five points? Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. We're actually going to start out on the perseverance of the saints because I think that is the key 
uh, point that uh, we need to adhere to or we need to understand. So T-U-L-I-P, the tulip. Now, here's my thesis, my summary. Chafer held to moderate Calvinism. He did call himself a Calvinist. Back then, there were two options. Basically, the big option, either I'm an Arminian, I believe in loss of salvation and so forth, or I'm a Calvinist. But Chafer made it very clear that he held to moderate Calvinism, moderate Calvinism. Now, some people think that most grads at Dallas Seminary, they really are four-point Calvinists because obviously Chafer taught the unlimited atonement, and therefore most grad, Dallas grads and the founder of Chafer held to four out of the five points. But we will see, though, that Chafer actually was moderate on all five points. He held a modified view on all five points as compared to Doherty and Calvinism. And we need to define that. Now, here is one critic of dispensationalism, Keith Matheson. And this is what he states about the perseverance of the saints. According to the dispensational doctrine of eternal security, once a person believes nothing he does, even persistent, persistent unconfessed sins, can affect his eternal salvation. This, however, differs from the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The Reformed doctrine of perseverance says that all who are chosen, redeemed, and regenerated by God are eternally saved and are kept in faith by the power of God. They must and will, therefore, persist in holiness to the end. Some people equate perseverance of the saints. That simply is another term for eternal security, and it is not. It is simply not. It's not true. So perseverance of the saints is not the same as the doctrine of eternal security. Chafer's focus was not on the perseverance of the saints, but on the preservation of the saints. And you clearly see this in his systematic theology. Now, Chafer may use the terminology. Chafer did use the term perseverance, but his entire focus in the section of his systematic theology was on the security of the believer. That was his entire focus. And not like today that the saints have to persevere to prove they're born again. Now, there are seven truths that Chafer taught to undermine the Calvinistic doctrine of perseverance. The fact that the believers are guaranteed to persevere in holiness to the end of their life. And if you don't persevere in holiness, you are never saved in the first place. And Chafer undermined that teaching through seven truths. And I think the biggest one is this distinction between the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment or the doctrine of rewards. That, I think, is a key dispensational distinction, and I'll explain why in a minute. But we're going to just list the seven uh, truths that Chafer taught to undermine perseverance. Secondly, the fact that there's a possibility for believers to die the sin unto physical death. It's possible for a born-again believer to live in carnality, and then continue in that state, and the Lord takes that believer home to be with him. Third, we have the distinction between the carnal and spiritual believer. As Chafer introduced this teaching in his book, He That Is Spiritual, there are three classes of individuals. We have the natural man, we have the spiritual man, and we have the carnal man. And flowing from that teaching, we have the truth of two natures. It's the truth that a lot of Calvinists deny. 
the fact that the believer has a sin nature and has a new nature. So that doctrine is under attack today, the two-nature view. Fourthly, we have the distinction, and I say the distinction between three separate tenses of salvation. When you believed in Christ, you were saved from sin's penalty. As you continue to grow in the Lord, you are being delivered from sin's power. And then ultimately, at the coming of Christ, you will be delivered from the presence of sin in your glorified bodies. Chafer clearly made that distinction. Calvinism typically blurs the first two tenses of salvation. They blur them together. Justification and sanctification are viewed as one. Number five, we'll take a look at um, the distinction between the believer's union and communion. And this affects how you interpret the whole book of 1 John, by the way. Is the whole book of 1 John test to prove that you're born again? We call this the test of life view. Or is the book of 1 John all about the believer's fellowship with God? You know, truths that if you don't love your, bro- love your brother, then maybe you're born again, but you're out of fellowship with God versus you're not saved. So there are lists. There are some who hold to the test of life view and uh, 1 John. And then John 15, abiding in Christ too. Do I have to continue to abide in Christ to be born again? Then the clarity of the gospel itself. And I do believe there's, it's a, certainly there are Reformed individuals who hold to faith alone in Christ alone. But the tendency of Reformed theology drifts toward some kind of a lordship or commitment salvation. That is the general tendency of lordship salvation versus a clear, undistinct view of faith alone in Christ alone. And then also the issue of perseverance affects when does a believer know he or she is saved? Can you know from the day you believe the promises of God in the Scripture that you're born again, or do you have to wait till some period in your life where you've seen enough maturity or development to say, finally, I'm saved? So the assurance certainly is another big issue, I think, with the Calvinistic doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Let's begin with that first one, the doctrine of rewards or the distinction between the judgment seat of Christ and of the great white throne judgment. If you have your Bibles, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And let's begin in verse 24. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Now the old King James has cast away, cast away. Here is adakimas, disqualified. Now, how do most Calvinists interpret this text? Most Calvinists are not premillennial, and they're not pre-tribulational. They're not dispensational. They believe at the end of human history, uh, there's one general resurrection and one general judgment. So there is no distinction in a believer's service. Every believer perseveres some more than others, but basically you're going to persevere in holiness 
and therefore it's a matter of getting into heaven or not. Whereas dispensationalists see a clear distinction between the judgment seat of Christ, which is for the believer's works, versus the great white throne judgment, which is the judgment for those unbelievers. And that distinction is key in how you look at running the Christian life. Now, there's, I have a fellow I'm going to quote here in a minute, a Calvinist, who believes that Paul was running to go to heaven. Paul was running to go to heaven. Now, if that's true, one or two things are true. Now, if you're Arminian, he says if Paul's running to go to heaven, he may lose his salvation. And that's how the Arminians look at this. The Calvinists, on the other hand, would say that Paul is not sure that he'll make it. <laughs> and therefore, that would prove that he was never saved in the first place. Really? Really? Um, that's not what this text is saying. Notice he talks about the prize. And we have to look at everything in, the, in its context. He's running for reward. He's running for reward. Is there a clear distinction between a gift and a prize? Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is one of the illustrations I even teach children with. I have a present up front. I don't have this with me, but a present, and then I have a trophy. Now, today, of course, everyone gets a trophy, <laughs> but <laughs> maybe that won't work today. But uh, you have a present which uh, someone paid for that you simply received freely. And you don't pay back that present. You can appreciate that present. You can give thanks for that present. But that's yours freely because someone else paid the price. That's what salvation is. It's a gift. <clears throat> now, a trophy, though, is earned. A trophy is earned by sweat and labor and hard work. You have to earn that prize. And so make that clear distinction in the Bible. Ephesians 2.8 says we're saved by grace through faith. And that knob yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So Paul's talking about the prize. He is speaking of reward. And he, he says, i got to continue, yes. I've got to continue. I may lose my reward. Now, what is Paul talking about by becoming disqualified? Now, if we go back just a few verses, just a few verses in chapter uh, 8 or chapter 9, we look at verse, when we look at verse 16, he says this, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast at, for necessity is laid upon me, Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if it's against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. Paul's stewardship will be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. But it's possible for him to veer off in false teaching, veer from false doctrine, or even walk away from the ministry itself. It's amazing how many pastors do that these days. Paul was worried about uh, not finishing the race. And I think that's what Paul had in mind about him being disqualified. And by the way, in chapter 10, we have examples of individuals who were saved by faith, the Exodus generation, but did not enter the promised land. Unless you say that these individuals are all unsaved, we have Moses included in that category. Moses failed to enter into his inheritance. 
So crossing into Canaan is not equated to going to heaven. Uh, these believers all walked by faith, all were saved by faith, but did not continue to live by faith. Notice the connection with the word all. In 1 Corinthians 9.24, he says, Those who run in a race all run, but one receives a prize. And notice the word all mentioned five times. Don't miss this connection in chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to become unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. And notice here, verse 5, but with most of them, God was not well pleased. Think about that. And you know the children of Israel placed the blood on the doorpost, and we had the Passover there. And in Exodus chapter 14, verse 31, after they saw the Egyptians drown in the Red Sea, they believed God. And Alan Ross, he says that Hebrew construction is the same as in Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. So that was a believing generation, but they were complainers. They were grumblers. Notice what happened to them in verse 5. Most of them, when God was not well pleased, their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things become our examples. Whose examples? The believers. The believers' examples. To the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they lusted. He's talking about here idolatry in verses 7 and 8. Verse 8, he speaks of sexual immorality. Neither let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 died. We have the death, sin and the physical death there as an example. Don't let us tempt Christ, as some of them tempted and were destroyed by serpents. And you say, well, I'm not uh, an idol worshiper or sexually immoral. Look at verse 10, nor complain. Uh, are you a chronic complainer? Is that a life of faith? No. It's not living by faith to be complaining all the time. And they complain ten times. Don't complain as some of them complained and were destroyed by the destroyers. Now, all these things happen to them as examples, and they are written for our admonition. He's writing to the Corinthian church age believers. And notice in verse 14, well, a believer can never practice idolatry. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. So these Corinthian believers were going back into some of the pagan practices that they grew up in. And notice he didn't, did not question their salvation. He calls them beloved. In verse 14, they are beloved, but he does warn them. He does warn them about not continuing in the Christian life. So I think this is the example here that shows that uh, this distinction between the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment is, not, is a distinction that we need to adhere to in order to not confuse uh, the gospel. Now, Cal, this is what Calvinist Sam Storm states about 1 Corinthians 9. Failing to finish the race because of entry or perhaps veering off course and crossing over into another runner's lane in the world track and field lead to almost certain disqualification. Paul appears to be drawing on this analogy. 
to make his case that if we hope to receive, listen to this, if we hope to receive the prize of full and final salvation, we too must endure to the end. We too must not run as to suffer expulsion. So really, we've got to continue to run so that we'll receive final salvation. Not a lot of assurance in that statement. And that's typical of Calvinists on this passage. What did Chafer state? Chafer said this, As for his service or that which man may do for God, he must yet appear before the judgment seat of Christ, where rewards are to be bestowed, and failure in service will be burned. There is no note of insecurity here. How could the man who wrote the eighth chapter of Romans be fearful lest he be cast away from God? Or how could the spirit who has said they shall never perish now imply that they might perish? This is what Chafer said about 1 Corinthians. So he did not hold to the Calvinistic position here of perseverance of the saints. He held to eternal security. Those who stand before the judgment seat of Christ will not only be saved and safe, but will already have been taken into heaven. See, think about that. The rapture, you'll already be in heaven. It's not a judgment to see whether you're going to heaven. You will be in heaven. Uh, Not on the ground of their merit or works, but on the ground of divine grace, made possible through the saviorhood of Christ. Since under grace, the character of the believer's life and service does not and cannot in any way condition his eternal salvation, by so much the life and service of the believer becomes a separate and unrelated issue to be judged by Christ who, whose we are and whom we serve. So the, again, this clear distinction at the coming of Christ, all believers will be at the Bema. And this is certainly separate from what will occur a thousand seven years later where all unsaved will stand before the great white throne judgment. And it's dispensational theology that makes this distinction. And generally those who are non-dispensational do not they press the judgments together. Therefore, that doctrine affects their view of the Christian life. Make that connection. That doctrine has an effect on, am I running just to go to heaven? No, there's more to it than that. All right. Now, biblical perseverance is tied to the doctrine of rewards. Now, look at these terms here. Does the Bible want the believer to continue you need to abide in John 8, 31, 1 Corinthians 3, 14. Run, 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Press, Philippians 3, 14. Continue, Colossians 1, 23. Endure, 2 Timothy 2, 12. Holding fast until the end, Hebrews 3, 14. Endure temptation, James 1, 12. Overcome and keep my, keep my works until the end, Revelation 2, 26. One thing about all these passages Chafer put these passages under the doctrine of reward. Whereas Calvinists would say, no, we've got to run, continue. They take it as per- proving the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. See? Now, the second truth is the fact that it's possible for a born-again believer to die ascending to physical death. And that one fact alone would falsify the Calvinistic doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Because they say that a believer will continue in holiness to the end of their life. But what happens when a believer doesn't and the Lord takes them home? That one doctrine falsifies a perseverance. And Chafer held the possibility of a born-again believer dying to send into physical death. 
1 Corinthians 11, 30 through 32, and 1 John 5, 16. Let's just take, because of time, let's look at 1 John 5, 16. 1 John 5, 16. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. And the Corinthian church, there were many who are weak and sickly and many have died, not respecting the communion of the Lord, the Lord's table, 1 Corinthians 11, 30-32. Now, Chafer said this about the passage in 1 John. This text is explicit. It refers to a brother whose term is never used to of the unregenerate and, def- and declares definitely that a Christian may sin in such a way that the chastisement of death may fall upon him. If the sin were not unto death, prayer might avail for him. Again, there is no evidence that the brother ceases to be what he is and his relationship to God or that this death is spiritual death which leads on to the second death. So Chafer clearly held that this is a brother who the Lord takes home early. He dies a sin to death. Now, we have several examples, and we don't have time to get into all these examples, but individuals in the past who I think died to sin to physical death. Saul, I believe Saul was a believer. And we have examples of that in 1 Samuel 28:19 and so forth. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts 5, 1 through 11, husband and wife, <laughs> both died to sin and to physical death. The Exodus generation, which we already looked at in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, died in the wilderness and uh, through 10, 11. And then those who partook of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, 1 Corinthians 11, 29 and 30. So we do have examples of believers who died to sin and to death. Now, the third distinction that undermines perseverance that Chafer taught is the distinction between the carnal and spiritual believer. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as to fleshly, as to babes in Christ, carnal. I have fed you with milk and not with solid food, for you now, or until now you were not able to receive it, And even now you're still, notice that, you are still not able. You are still carnal. We could say that they were in a state of carnality. They were in a state of carnality. For whereas there are envy, strife, divisions among you are not carnal and behaving. Notice they're behaving like, what does it mean they're behaving like mere men? They're behaving like the unsaved. If you put a carnal Christian beside a a believer, or or not, uh, you put a carnal Christian beside an unbeliever, sometimes you couldn't distinguish the two. Many times they look identical as far as their life. And actually, the believer, born again believer, can look worse uh, in carnality than the unsaved. Now, Walford, remember there there was an article uh, on the. and uh, he that is spiritual, there was a review of that uh, by Warfield, and uh, Warfield objected to Chafer's point of view about the carnal Christian. And this shows that a Calvinist back in that day was attacking Lewis Berry Chafer. And uh, this is what he said, Warfield objects to Chafer's point of view because 
He considers it, Walbert states this later about Chafer's view, he considers it a blending of Arminian and Calvinistic theology. Isn't that interesting how Walbert views uh, the criticism against Chafer? And general dispensationalists, while while usually Calvinistic, object to making conversion and sanctification holy the sovereign acts of God apart from human participation. That would be anathema to most Calvinists. Dispensations hold that many exhortations of Scripture become meaningless if there is not some human responsibility associated with those aspects of salvation. This is his view. And a great view, by the way, five views on sanctification. And it's interesting, in that book, we have the Reformed view contrasted with the, with the Augustine view of Walvard. So the Reformed view and the Keswick view also is another separate view. Many individuals accuse Chafer of being simply adopting some of the higher life view, and that's not true. Now, Ryrie said this, if pers- and I added this in my quote, in, in quotes, but if perseverance seems to focus on the believer, it is a believer who perseveres, albeit through the decree and power of God, security focuses on God. It is sometimes... It is God who secures our salvation. Sometimes those who approach this doctrine from the viewpoint of perseverance deny the possibility of being a carnal Christian. So Ryrie clearly states those who teach reform perseverance uh, many times deny the fact that a Christian can be carnal. Now, also flowing from the distinction between the spiritual and the carnal believer is a position that the believer has two natures, two natures. Those who tend to emphasize perseverance either deny that a believer has two natures or try to minimize the struggle and the Christian with indwelling sin. And that's why they attacked a two-nature view. Uh, Anthony Hokema, responding to Dr. Walver's presentation and the view Five Points of Sanctification, says this, My basic problem with Walver's presentation is that in my judgment he fails to do full justice to the fact that a decisive break with sin was brought about by Christ for believers, Romans 6, 6. So that sin, though still present in the believer, no longer has dominion, verse 14. And to the amazing truth that a believer is now indeed a new creature, old things having passed away, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. By the way, that text doesn't mean that your old habits are gone when you believe in Christ. The key term is in Christ. You have a different position Your relationship to Adam in Adam is gone. You have a new identity in Christ. That's what that means. It doesn't mean all your old habits disappear when you believe in Christ. (laughs) Now, this author goes on to state, the basic problem of sanctification from the Augustinian dispensational perspective is how individuals with these two diverse aspects in their total character, the old and new nature, can achieve at least a relative measure of sanctification and righteousness in their life. He gives the impression that the Christian is something like a spiritual seesaw with two contradictory types of inner tendencies. With both tugging at one's heart, a believer can go either way. Has Anthony ever read Romans 7? (laughs) And uh, that's why the Reformed view normally take Romans 7 as descriptive of an unbeliever. But Chafer clearly taught the two eyes that this is a believer with two natures. 
Uh, Chafer says this, the essential passage bearing upon the truth that the believer possesses two natures and that one of these, the sin nature, cannot be governed even by the willpower of the regenerate person is found in Romans 7, 15 through 8, 4. The Calvinists look at Chafer's position and Anthony criticized it uh, with this idea that the believers constantly struggle between two natures, not really realizing that Chafer went on to describe the victory over those two natures is in Romans 8. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't say that that's a believer uh, stagnant. It could be a believer stagnant in his Christian life, but it doesn't have to be. See, Chafer did teach victory. We can have victory over the flesh. doesn't mean sinless perfection either, but victory. Now, fourth view uh, that undermines perseverance that Chafer taught this is key also, the three tenses of salvation. Chafer clearly made a distinction between justification and what we call progressive sanctification. He believed there's a distinction between salvation from sin's penalty, salvation from sin's power, and then salvation from sin's presence. Philippians 2, 12, and 13 is another text that are, that's used by Calvinists to teach perseverance of the saints. They try to teach the logical link between justification, sanctification by this text. But when you put it into the category of deliverance from sin's power, then you clearly keep those two tenses distinct. Let's take a look at Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed not my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Uh Uh-oh. (laughs) <laughs> uh, notice what it doesn't say it didn't say work for your salvation see it does say work out your salvation but salvation from what from sin's penalty no that's accomplished salvation from sin's power that's the salvation for it is god who works in you both to will and to do god can give you the desire and then the ability he gives you a new nature that desires righteous things, he gives you the power of the Holy Spirit that gives you the ability to overcome the flesh. So this is the believer's progressive sanctification. Now, Chafer said the Christian was saved when he believed. This past tense aspect of it is the essential and unchanging fact of salvation. At the moment of believing, the saved one is completely delivered from his lost state, cleansed, forgiven, justified, born of God, clothed in the merit of Christ, free from all condemnation, safe forevermore. Are you sure, Chafer? (laughs) He seemed pretty certain there. And that's accomplished when you believe. Now, the fifth distinction here is the distinction between the believer's union with Christ and communion. That's a very important distinction. And that affects your understanding of what it means to abide in Christ. Now, is John describing, I had to abide in union with Christ, I had to continue to persevere so that I will remain in union with Christ. That's how Calvinists would, would teach John 15. Or as Chafer taught, is the abiding life abiding for fellowship with the Lord. And when I'm in fellowship, I will produce, you know, no, it begins with no fruit, more fruit, much fruit, and fruit that abides. And then John, who wrote 1 John, his uses that word meno abide many times through that letter. And therefore, that affects also your understanding of 
the abiding life in the book of First John. It's fellowship, which is also Dr. Pentecost's position in his commentary on First John. So this uh, is the test of life view, which would be the Reformed Calvinist view versus test of fellowship in, in some, unfortunately, confused dispensationalist view and the test of fellowship view. Now, Chafer said this, it is claimed that an unfruitful Christian should not go to heaven. If it's claimed that an unfruitful Christian should not go to heaven, it will be remembered that the assurance of heaven does not depend on communion or fruit bearing. He's alluding to John 15, but on union with Christ. It is also to be considered that all Christians' success or failure is to be judged at the Bema. The judgment seat of Christ in heaven and that the, fruit, the, the fruitless Christian must therefore must thus go to heaven before he can appear before that tribunal. Now listen to this. If entering heaven is not due to a divine undertaking in behalf of all who are in union with Christ and apart from every aspect of human merit, there is little hope for anyone on this earth. Hmm. Now the uh, sixth truth is the clarity of the gospel. Chafer clearly taught that there are upwards of 150 passages that teach one condition on man's part in order to receive eternal life, faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. And this is not what uh, many Reformed theologians teach. They call it easy believism or cheap grace. Now, Chafer said this, no more can grace remain grace if by its benefits, there is created and imposed the slightest obligation for payment or remuneration. Grace is unrecompensed favor. Its riches must be bestowed and received only on the ground that is an uncomplicated gift. I give unto them eternal life, and the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John 10:28, Romans 6:23. So God's call to the unsaved is never to the lordship of Christ. Did Chafer believe in lordship of salvation? No, he did not. It is unto his saving grace. A self-dedication taxes the limits of ability even on the most devout believer. The error of imposing Christ's lordship upon the unsaved is disastrous. Would any zealous advocate of the idea that the lordship of Christ must be applied to an unsaved as a condition of salvation dare to propose to the unsaved that they must not only believe on Christ, but be willing to die a martyr's death. Why, why, not, why not go all the way? Are you really committed to the Lordship of Christ? If you want to be saved, you need to be willing to die a martyr's death. Now, uh, Chafer taught about uh, teaching the finished work of Christ. Preaching the gospel is telling men something about Christ and his finished work for them, which they are to believe. This is the simplest test to be applied to all soul-saving appeals. The gospel has not been preached until a personal message concerning a crucified and living Savior has been presented, and in a form which calls for the response of personal faith. The Savior said, Verily, verily, I say to you, He that believes on me hath everlasting life. What did John MacArthur say about this? Now, listen to this statement. Thus, in a sense, we pay the ultimate price for salvation. When our sinful self is nailed to a cross, it is a total abandonment of self-will like the grain of wheat that falls to the ground and dies so that it can bear much fruit. It is an exchange of all that we are for all that Christ is. 
and it denotes implicit obedience. Full surrender to the Lordship of Christ, nothing less can qualify as saving faith. To me, that is salvation but clearly by works. We pay the price. I thought redemption means Christ paid the price. He paid the price and we received that benefit. We don't add to a finished work sacrifice. We simply accept it as a free gift by faith. Now, in holding to his view, he draws not from his dispensationalism. He draws from his Calvinism. And this is what he badmouths Chafer in his dispensational theology. And this is his book, uh, The Gospel According to Jesus. That first quote, by the way, is only in the first edition. Apparently, that was so bad he scrubbed it in the second edition. <laughs> but uh, uh, he did state the same thing about being willing to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, and so forth. So he still taught his lordship salvation there. Now, MacArthur says this, There is a tendency, however, for dispensations to get carried away with compartmentalizing truth to the point that they make unbiblical distinctions. An almost obsessive desire to categorize and contrast related truth has carried various dispensations interpreters far beyond legitimate distinction between Israel and the church. Many would also draw hard lines between salvation and discipleship, the church and the kingdom, Christ's preaching and the apostolic message, faith and repentance, and the age of law and the age of grace. What's the problem, John? <laughs> What's the problem with that? <laughs> uh, those are legitimate distinctions, I think, clearly from the text of Scripture. But he criticizes that. Now, Grant Holly says this, MacArthur's criticism of specific writers is reserved exclusively, and this is his book. He's uh, uh, talking about MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to Jesus. He said his criticism is exclusively reserved for dispensational scholars such as Chafer, Ryrie, Hodges, Constable, Schofield, Wilkin, and Thien. While quoting from nearly 40 non-dispensational and quite often anti-dispensational scholars in only one dispensationalist for his support and disparagement of free grace. Think about that. All the authors he quotes are Reformed and Calvinistic and his support for Lordship Salvation. And he criticizes dispensation. So MacArthur is distancing himself in that area of soteriology from the dispensational perspective. And he's going more his Reformed theology is shaping his lordship salvation. Look at Romans 4, 5. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Think about this. This passage clearly teaches that faith is not a work. But to him who does not work, but what? Believes. See, Reformed uh, Calvinism teaches that faith is a work. And therefore, in order for salvation to be totally by grace, God has to give you the faith. But faith is non-meritorious. There's no merit in faith. The merit's in the object of faith, Jesus Christ. Faith is not a work. The object of faith has the merit. But to him who does, does not work, but believes on him. See, our faith is not directed toward ourself, my commitment, my performance, my surrender to the Lordship of Christ. It's to Christ who paid the work. The merit's not in my faith. You believe, then you are justified. Also, the idea of regeneration occurring before faith, 
here. Notice he justifies who? The ungodly. He doesn't justify the person who's already born again. He justifies the ungodly who believes. And by the way, it says his faith is accounted for righteousness. God gives you the faith, and no, it's your faith. And later on in Romans, Abraham believed. It didn't say God gave Abraham faith. It says Abraham believed, and it was credited him for righteousness. Now, the seventh truth is the assurance of the believer. And I think this is probably the key issue. And uh, the key issue is, can I have absolute assurance based on believing the promises of God in the Scripture that I have eternal life? And can I be assured the very day I believe the gospel? And Dallas Seminary used to adhere to that. That was in their doctrinal statement. And they believed, Chafer taught, that the very day you believe, you can have assurance. I don't have to wait, you know, 10 years or 5 years or even 5 days to see if I have enough works to prove that I'm born again. 1 John chapter 5, let's look at the scripture, 1 John 5, verse 11. And this is a testimony that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know, know you have eternal life. Now, the rest of the passage is not in the, uh, some of the other translations, but even if it is, it talks about sanctification here. We need to continue to believe. Uh, but here the idea is assurance, assurance for the believer. I've used this passage many times to lead people to assurance of salvation. I can know today because God promised me eternal life, and that's blessed assurance. Chafer said this, commenting on 1 John 5, 13, Chafer said, Thus has God revealed it is the divine purpose that everyone who believes to the saving of his soul may know that he is saved. Not in this instance through uncertain Christian experience, but on the ground of that which is written in Scripture. Notice he said, Now he did allow for works as a secondary confirming value, but he placed the weight on the Word of God and our confidence in what God promised. He says this, feelings and experience have their place, but as before stated, the crowning evidence of personal salvation, which is unchanged by all these, is the truthfulness of God. What he has said he will do. And it is, notice this, it is not pious or commendable to distrust personal salvation after having definitely cast oneself upon Christ. And we're talking, you know, uh, uncertainty today is praised. Uncertainty today is praised, even in theological circles. But no, certainty uh, is, uh, is good. Was Paul sure of his salvation? Well, if we compare the dates when 1 Corinthians 9.27 was written, I myself might be a castaway. The very next year, he said, in Romans 8, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present, even future things, things that come, Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did he sound unclear there? Uh, No. Uh, Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. Notice our, including himself, from which we wait for the Savior. Did Paul sound he was unsure of his salvation? No. And then finally, he realized that he would finish the course, which means this race that he was running, 
when right before he died, he says, I fought the good fight, I've finished the race. In 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. And as a result, there's reward, not heaven, but the crown of righteousness. This is what MacArthur states about this. Periodic doubts about one's salvation are not necessarily wrong. Scripture encourages self spiritual self-examination. 2 Corinthians 13.5, and I think you wrote on that, Andy, that passage. It doesn't teach that we need to examine our works in order to be saved. Now, this is what he also stated. We are commanded to examine ourselves at least as often as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Okay, some churches do that weekly, others monthly, others quarterly. You mean I have to constantly question my salvation? Every time I partake of the Lord's Supper, I thought the word Eucharist means Thanksgiving. <laughs> I wouldn't be very thankful if I had to question my salvation every time I appear before the Lord's Supper. So let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 11.28. 1 Corinthians 11.28. But a let a man examine himself, and let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, is the judgment hell? No. The judgment is a sin unto physical death if a believer will continue in this. Verse 30, there's three stages of divine discipline here. For this reason, many are weak, physical weakness, many are sick, and then many died. By the way, the word sleep is a metaphor only used of believers in the New Testament. So he's speaking of born-again believers. In order to avoid that, what self-examination? Being your own judge, verse 31. If we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. And being judged by God is chastening. That's parental discipline in verse 32. So he's talking about examining whether you're in fellowship with God, not examining whether you're born again. John MacArthur takes it as examination whether you're saved all right uh, calvinistic doctrine of perseverance undermines assurance of salvation if you don't persevere you were never saved in the first place this goes hand in hand with lordship salvation therefore lordship salvation would say you really didn't dedicate the first time yourself to the lord and that's why you can't say well you just need to believe the gospel you know, you always ask this question, what about that person who claims to be saved and you see no evidence? And what do you do as a pastor with that individual? Give them the gospel. <laughs> Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, that's what you do with that individual. Have you believed? And if they say they have, well, you know God will discipline you as a Christian. You know that you'll lose out rewards. You lose rewards at the judgment seat of Christ and so forth. But... Um, this doctrine of eternal security is clear in John 10, 27, 28. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And by the way, that's a metaphor for believing. That's a metaphor for believing. It does, notice the order, by the way. It didn't say I give them eternal life and then they follow me. It says they follow me and then I give them eternal life. Very important order there scripturally. Verse 20, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. I recommend two resources on the issue of perseverance. Uh, Dennis Roxer's book on eternal security and Tom Stegall's book on perseverance, which I think is the best exegetical dispensational defense of against the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. He has 
a lot of quotes from Roman Catholic scholars, Reform scholars, and they look identical, by the way, and their view of perseverance. And uh, I highly recommend that. And I just thought, I know we're running out of time. We still have to cover all the other four points, but I just want to briefly. <laughs> I knew this would happen. I knew this would happen. Uh, total depravity. Let's get to the high, uh, just touch on the high points of total depravity. These are the three issues, key issues in total depravity. Does regeneration precede faith? The bond, is the will bound? Luther wrote a book, The Bondage of the Will. And then is faith a gift? Chafer denied all three. Chafer denied all three. He said faith comes, and so did Walbert. I have quotes from Walbert. It's in the paper. You can read the paper. But uh, uh, regeneration does not precede faith. The will is not bound. He talks about free will, by the way. Oh, you can't say free will. An unsaved person has free will. I can give you dozens of quotes from Chafer, Walbert, Ryrie that acknowledge that man has a free will. And uh, it's extensive. So uh, in, the, in faith, now Chafer did use the terminology faith as a gift, so does Schofield, but I think they believe that uh, God has given man an opportunity to believe in that sense. But uh, clearly those three, are that's the key to total depravity. Now, let's I'll just... I have quotes here from Ryrie. I want to run through. Oh, by the way, here's a guy named Roy Aldridge. He was the first graduate of DTS, and he attacked this idea of regeneration before faith. I think this is a Bibsack article in 1969, and uh, he certainly did not hold to the Calvinistic perspective. First graduate of DTS. Um, let's go on here. Harold Honer has an excellent commentary on Ephesians, that also addresses that passage in Ephesians 2.8 and so forth. Now, let's, let's look at this uh, summary here. Irresistible grace. Um, extreme Calvinist teaches that uh, grace is uh, irresistible in a compulsive sense, means against man's will. God forces salvation upon you. He gives you the faith, and therefore you're born again. Whether... Whereas the Bible does say that man is depraved, man is blind to sin, therefore it's the Holy Spirit that convicts the unbeliever of their need for Christ. And therefore, modern Calvinism would hold that uh, grace is given in a persuasive sense in accordance with man's will. And that's the distinction that Chafer held to. Now, can grace be resisted? Certainly it can. Uh, let's talk about limited atonement. Christ, uh, Chafer, this is one point that most agree that Chafer clearly taught that Christ died for not the elect, simply the elect, but the sins of the whole world. First John 2, 2, he's a propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Christ died. And by the way, this affects the gospel as well. If you think that only Christ died for the elect, I can't tell the lady, the lady at the grocery store, Christ died for you. You think the practical, there's practical ramifications from this doctrine, by the way, of Calvinism. Uh, and, and therefore, I can't say that Jesus died for you. Uh, and therefore, I probably had to have some kind of commitment gospel, right? Uh, turn from your sins, uh, you know, all this reform stuff. So Chafer clearly taught that the, the Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Many scriptures, passages support this, tru this truth. And a passage such as containing the word world, the passage containing the word whosoever, 
What about the word uh, uh, all? And there's many, Pat, Robert Leitner, by the way, the best book defending the unlimited atonement from a dispensational perspective is this one, The Death Christ Died by Robert Leitner. He was one of my professors at uh, DTS. 1 John 2.2, 2, we already addressed that passage. Let's get to the doctrine of unconditional election. Um, Steele and Thomas said this, God's choice of certain individuals unto salvation before the foundation of the world rests solely in his own sovereign will. His choice of particular sinners was not based on any foreseen response or obedience on their part, such as faith, repentance, etc. On the contrary, God gives faith and repentance to each individual whom he selected. Now, see the connection here. It's not simply that God elected individuals. It's like he elected and then he gives them faith because Christ only died for the elect, and therefore that's why grace is irresistible. And see, I think Calvinism stands or falls together, all five points. You accept all of it or none of it. Uh, And he made this connection here. Thus God's choice of the sinner and not the sinner's choice of Christ is the ultimate cause of salvation. Now, Chafer made a distinction between the meritorious cause of salvation and the efficacious cause and so forth. He, he, he allows for the free will tr- decision of man. And uh, Chafer, though, even in holding to election, he did distinguish three views on Calvinism. He talks about the superlapsarian or the high Calvinists. We would, these guys would tend to support double predestination. The infralapsarians view and then the sublapsarian. And I simply, you don't have to understand all the details of this, but simply showing that there is room in the Calvinistic system, even of his day, not holding to the extreme Calvinistic perspective, even on election. There are other options out there, I think. Um, there's election for service. And I list five individuals, I think, that are exploring uh, other avenues on the doctrine of election. There's election for service. There's many pastors indicating God choosing people to serve. Uh, Anthony Badger is one representative of this view. We have election for sanctification. Now, this is not Tom's exclusive view, but he does have pastors that support that we are elected to serve. We, we are chosen to serve. And so... He does have many passages supporting that, that Calvinists typically, typically uh, quote, uh, elect to go to heaven. Now, uh, I believe R.B. Theme Jr. held to a, sort of a corporate view. He held to election for superior privilege, uh, the idea that the believer in Christ is the elect one and the, and the born-again believers in Christ. Therefore, when you believe, you are in union with him. You are choice. Even uh, Gordon Olson holds the view that the word choose means choice. I'm choice in Christ. Uh, then election based on foreknowledge. Thiessen, by the way, held to that view. And Harry Ironside. Harry Ironside also held election based on foreknowledge. Um, and Norm Geis would hold to, ele- uh, he has a book, Chosen But Free, which I think is a great book. I don't agree with everything that Norm has to say in that book. But I think it's a great book covering the verses on Calvinism and answering those uh, arguments from a scriptural perspective. And he says election is in accordance with foreknowledge. So there are other, I think this is a doctrine that uh, should be explored further, 
by dispensational writers, and there's room for that. Now, I want to quote one of the, I call, co-founder of Dallas Seminary, who died before uh, Chafer, before 24, but um, before he was assigned to teach there at DTS. But Griffith Thomas, W.H. Griffith Thomas, he was a co-founder who combined many of these elements in his view of election. And I'll read this quote, and then we'll, we'll close. Election is always associated with union and uh, with Christ, chosen in Christ. So he would have kind of a corporate understanding there. Christ in Christ alone is a sphere of election. And it is only as a believer is in Christ that he can regard himself as one of the elect people of God. See, he would be kind of precursor of uh, later, I think, um, R.B. Themes' view. Election is associated with God's foreknowledge. Here's foreknowledge perspective there. God sees and knows beforehand the issues of events and actions. And though we must be careful not to make his divine action contingent on faith, as though that were the ground and cause of salvation rather than his mercy alone, yet the fact that election is thus associated with foreknowledge is a striking indication of the balance and precision of the New Testament revelation concerning us. And then C, elections associated with God's purpose of service. So he had this idea of we're, we're chosen to serve, we're elected to serve. God's men are choice. It's interesting, Gordon Olson takes that perspective. We're choice in Christ, uh, who are called to endure hardship and do service for him. So far from election ministering to in, in action and carelessness, the elect believer whose lives are recorded in Scripture were the most strenuous toilers and often the greatest sufferers in history. And then D, election is always associated with God's requirement of holiness. Holiness. So uh, Gordon Olson kind of opens a door to these other perspectives that uh, recent dispensational writers have developed on the doctrine of election. But I was surprised to find that perspective even as early uh, in the 20s as... Um, before DTS took off and, and uh, so forth. Now, we have various examples of those who were chosen, and so in Christ I have examples in the paper. You can look at that. Uh, Tom Segal has a list that were called to be holy, called to proclaim his virtue, called to suffer, called, called to glory and virtue, called to bear fruit. You know, the Calvinists typically take calling as calling to go to heaven. You know, that term you're called as equal to, to predestinated, but not that's not necessarily the usage of the term, uh, called to liberty and so forth. Summary. We see clearly that, that those early dispensational writers such as Chafer clearly held to a more balanced view of Calvinism on all five points of the tulip. Chafer goes on to state that if we stick strictly with the view of Scripture, we could drop the terms Calvinist or Arminian and simply state that we are Biblicists. While Chafer held to the Calvinistic label and held to a more moderate Calvinism, his dispensational theology laid the groundwork for a more biblical approach concerning soteriology. Now, this is a quote from Chafer. The names Calvinism and Arminianism may well be dismissed if only a clear understanding of the Word of God may be gained. And I say that we need to drop the name Calvinism and say simply, I'm a Biblicist. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we pray as students of the Scripture, we might be honest with the text. We might be honest with what you state, 
And Father, we do thank you, Lord, that salvation is purely by grace through faith. And we pray, Father, that if there's anyone listening has never placed their faith alone in Christ alone, that they might do so and have eternal life. And for those who have already placed their faith in Christ, I pray, Father, that we might continue to persevere, continue to go forward in the Christian life so that we will be honored and rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Good job, John. That was great. Thank you. Yep. Yep. (laughs) All right. Any... um... Any questions? Um, I just have, you know, the um, faith is not a work, Romans 4, verse 5. When I use that, they always throw back at me John 6, 28 and 29. You know, this is the work of God that you may, you know, they ask, what, what, what must we do to do the works of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God that you may believe. So they use that to teach uh, faith is a work. So do you have you looked into that? Well, I would answer them it would be equal to the obedience of faith. And the Bible indicates four or five times that we need to obey. But when, for instance, if the Philippian jailer, uh, the question, you know, what must I do to be saved in response and hear the word believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is an act. Any other questions over here? It's a good presentation. I've heard from uh, some Reformed people that when you're born again, you're in your new creation, you you change physically where you're not accepting sin anymore. Like you... Like, you know, you're not, you're, you're different physically after you're born again, and there's not the, I don't know how to explain it, um, you're not able to sin like you used to. They, they say that. I've heard John Piper and other people say that kind of stuff. I think it's important to define what you mean by nature, you know, like a, ca- a capacity or disposition to something, not not something um, substantival, I would say. Yeah. Okay, Mike. With regards to what uh, Andy said a while ago, with uh, when the Lord said, uh, this is the work of God, could that be talking about um, common grace? Where, I'm, the, I'm, not, where, I'm not sure. You want to address that, Robbie? 
John 6 passage? No, I don't think that's that's not how I would handle that. I would look at that much like Andy would look at that. The word work and doing something are ambiguous terms in places. We impose a certain um, strict theological definition on them when that's not how they're 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 used in a in a sort of a general or generic way in many places like yeah when i believe i do something but that's not what we're saying when we're saying that it's not by works it's not something meritorious that we are performing for which we receive salvation so i think we have to be careful how we define these terms and not impose a general, uh, a strict theological term back onto a more general way in which something is said in Scripture. Uh, could it be that the work of God, he's referring to what Christ did on the cross in order to make it available, salvation? I don't think that's what we used to address. No, I don't I'm think not, that's... I'm not, I'm not saying I, I know yeah. these. I'm just trying to... Get it straight in my mind what that means. Well, I, I, if you look at what the, the, the rabbinical of the Jews view there, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? They're looking for something that they're doing that, that merits God's favor. Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. You know, that's what he's talking about. This is what God expects of you, is that you believe in him who he sent. So he's kind of turning it back on them. It's actually uh, a couple of, <clears throat> well, a comment and a question of kind of about the lordship salvation stuff. Uh, first of all, I just wanted to, as a comment, I was listening to the radio one day, and it, and it happened to be John MacArthur who was teaching, and, and many times when he would come on the radio, I would enjoy listening to his teaching, and that day all of a sudden he came out and very matter-of-factly said, there is no such thing as a carnal Christian. And as soon as he said that, I turned the radio off. Yeah, right. <laughs> that was it. Right. I was done listening. Right. But my question, my question has to do with First Peter uh, three fifteen. Would you? I mean, I know you didn't talk about this, but do you have any right. idea what do they do with the idea of sanctifying Christ as Lord in your heart? I mean, if lordship salvation is true, I don't have to sanctify Christ as Lord. He's already Lord. So why is yeah. Peter telling believers that they need to set apart or sanctify? Uh, God or Christ in their hearts. That, that, well, how do they address that? Do you know? Uh, I don't know. You mean taking this verse? Yeah. How, how, what, how what, does a, what does a lordship guy do with that? I don't. I don't know in particular how they would answer that. Yeah, because it seems right. like that if, if if you have already had to make him your lord right. in order to be saved, then as right. a believer, you would never need to do First Peter three fifteen. I, I would also add uh, Romans twelve one and two. He beseeches right. believers to present their bodies. Yeah. If that's something we all do up front in order to be saved, then why does he need to tell believers to do that? To you know, yeah. present your bodies later. You know. Yeah. All right. One more question. Thanks. Well, this isn't a question, but it's a, uh, I guess, a comment on the. Uh, um, 
the, the passage about uh, where Jesus, the John passage where Jesus said this is the work. Um, I think this is no deep ex- exegetical insight, but I kind of think Jesus was yanking their chain. They were looking for a work, and he says, here's your work. Do something that's not a work. That's good. <laughs> I, that's kind of yeah. how I take it. Maybe I, I'm not trying to claim that that's sure. the answer, but that's that's yeah. kind of how I see it. All right. Well, thank you, John. All right. Thank you. Very much. All right. Well, that brings our afternoon session to a conclusion. And we'll be back here at 7.30 this evening for our closing session with Dr. Johnson. And look forward to everyone uh, being back here this evening. And just, again, another reminder about the... uh, uh, donations for those who are are in Ukraine as we are, um, you know, just working to help people who need that that aid. And again, we'll be taking up an offering this evening in relationship to taking care of all of the uh, obligations and costs of the of the conference. So we'll see y'all back here in three hours.